We're back. Another episode of the Defend and Confirm podcast. I'm Sean. I'm Russell. And we are continuing in our church planning movement series, uh, disciple making movements, missionary movements. Uh, and uh, we have had a couple of episodes so far. We did our introductory, what what are church planning movements episode. And then we had our two episodes on the history of, you know, how do we get here, right? How do we get to church planning movements? And uh, nobody listened to or watched those, so that's good. That's good. Um, and now we are finally uh, arriving at the episode where we begin to critique church planning movements. Uh, Russell, anything you want to say about the way that we're going to approach these episodes? Yeah, we're going to start our launch pad for these critiques is going to be some of the uh, tools, is what generally movement practitioners would call these. Uh, they're just methods for using this paradigm, and they're things that people who are in any way exposed to this stuff are yeah. going to easily recognize. So we're just going to take one method that they employed this week in this episode, and then we're going to take another method that's employed next week in that episode, and we're going to, what, hit the main three or four tools that they use? That's right. And, and as we go, we're going to sort of pull at those threads and show the underlying theological problems mm. behind those methods. So we're not just critiquing the pragmatic aspects. We're, we're, we're saying the, these methods are bad ultimately because the theology that undergirds them is bad. Yeah, and that's that's super important. Okay. So this week's episode is on what tool that they employ? What are we doing this on? The person of peace. Um like no yeah. okay all right or house pro. house of peace persons of peace okay uh it'll be abbreviated pop and a lot of the literature on this the pop you should have just said that the pop yeah okay. Oklahoma pop <laughs> so we've got uh this person of peace idea is taught in virtually all multiplying movement camps so, okay uh church planning movement disciple making movement t for t four fields uh they really see this as a first step for entering into areas where you're as a missionary you're a cultural outsider yeah. So this isn't necessarily something that would be used in your own neighborhood in the States, uh, though many of them teach you right. should. Yeah. Uh, it really is sort of designed to be a way to get entry into a new group. So you and your family move to some village on the outskirts of one uh, a certain province in China. You're there to take the gospel to the nations. As a church planning movement guy, the first thing you're going to do is try to find a person of peace. Step one. Yeah, and, and many of them would state it even a little bit more forcefully. They would okay. say that's the primary job of the missionary. Wow. Okay. Not just here's a way to go start spreading the gospel, but this is the way. Okay. This is your primary purpose is to find the person of peace. So uh, they'll use that article yeah. adjective as in if this is not just a person of peace, but the, the person of peace that God has put there. Yeah. Uh, and they really they see this as a person that God has has prepared. Yeah, and prepared for the missionary and for the gospel, and that person is going to act as sort of a, a gatekeeper to the rest of that culture. So we don't believe that God prepares people for the gospel. Is that what you're saying? That's not what we're saying. Oh, okay. So we believe, obviously, that the Holy Spirit works in people's hearts even before they hear the gospel mm -hmm. proclaimed. Uh, however, there's a certain element of this that, is, that assumes that that's a normative method by which the missionary should work. Yeah. And we would say, though, God can do things like that. Yeah. We shouldn't expect that that's always what he's going to do or that that's primarily the missionary's task always. Yeah. You're going in. Yeah. You're looking for the person of peace. This is the person that the Spirit's been preparing or maybe a household of peace that the Spirit's been preparing just for you. Okay. Go ahead. Take it well, from there. I, <laughs> I'm going to give you some quotes. Uh, it's important that we quote 
the authors who are articulating these ideas, the original sources, yeah. so that people don't get the impression that we're straw manning or mischaracterizing this this idea. I think they'll still say that they'll we're try. taking them out of context <laughs> or we don't really understand what they're saying, but this is our best effort at yeah, yeah. presenting them as they actually are. So here's David Watson, who is, is really the guy for popularizing mm. this. Okay. Uh, he said, the person of peace teaching is an entry strategy to new communities. In the Great Commission, Jesus commanded us to go. What do we do when we get to where we are going? We find the person of peace. So Jesus kind of implicitly said there in Matthew 28, when he said go, what he meant was go and look for the person of peace. I don't remember that part, but maybe David Watson has a different translation. I was going to ask you where we got this from, but I'm guessing we'll get there. Let let me read the next one. This is from Jerry Trousdale. Jesus commanded his disciples to seek out a person of peace whenever they entered a new community. I just... In this process, two things should connect. First, the person of peace is waiting for someone to help him deal with a significant spiritual hunger. Second, the church planter or disciple maker must be looking for the person of peace. Yeah, so we're critiquing now. (laughs) It's go time. (laughs) So just flat out, this is just wrong. Yeah. Uh, We do not see in the Great Commission a charge to go find a person of peace. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, he's reading that into the text, Watson is. Second, Jesus commanded his disciples to seek out a person of peace where, whenever they entered a new community. That's mm. what Trousdale says. That's yeah. not true. No, it's not true. And we're going to explain how they got there. Yeah. Uh, but it's just fundamentally, it's just not true. Yes, this, yeah, is, okay. this is reading their preferred methodology back into the biblical text yeah. rather than looking at the text and trying to derive some principles for how to do missions. Yeah. So let's look at the scripture that they would point to as sort of the key text to get us to the person of peace technique or tool. So they're going to say, of course, uh, there's two, Luke 10 and Matthew 10. So in Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 72. uh, And he gives these disciples instructions as they go throughout Israel uh, to proclaim the kingdom of God. So I'm going to read Luke 10. Uh, This is where Jesus sends out the 72. Uh, He says to them, go your way. Behold, I am sending out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages." Do not go from house to house. Uh, He goes on to say, you know, when you enter a town, eat what's set before you, heal the sick. Uh, And then he says, you know, if you go somewhere and they do not receive you, even the dust, your even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we will wipe off against you. That's what he tells the disciples to say. Yeah. Uh, So there's a a similar account in Matthew 10. Yeah. Uh, Same language is used as he sends out the 12. So the first thing we need to hammer on here is the bad exegesis, the bad interpretation of this Mm -hmm. text that leads to thinking that Jesus is, for all of time, uh, instructing his disciples to follow this particular pattern. Yeah. Well, you want to go first? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, just because something is being described in a gospel doesn't mean that it is being uh, prescribed doesn't mean that Jesus wants us to do that forever. Descriptive is just talking about uh, what is happening in the text, and we have to be careful not to let things that are merely being described in the text, uh, we, we can't assume that those are being prescribed, that just because it's happening, it should always happen in that way for the rest of you know the existence of the church. Uh, and 
Now, a pushback uh, to to that argument here might be that Jesus isn't merely describing something, he's actually prescribing it. He's saying, you guys should do this. And by you guys, you mean us today. Well, that's what they would say, yeah. right? They, they would say, Jesus is telling the disciples that, and if he's telling the disciples that, then it's applying to us today. Everything, How you, everything he tells the disciples applies to applies us, to us yeah. as present-day disciples. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I think one of the easiest ways to, to think through questions like this is to sort of think of it like one of those maps when you go into the mall. You, the, first, the, <laughs> yeah. the map doesn't make sense yeah. until you find the, where you are. The you are here. Yeah. And where we are in redemptive history compared to where the disciples were right then in Luke 10 mm-hmm. uh, is enormously different. We're on the other side of the cross, yeah. we're on the other side of Pentecost. This is a very specific aspect of Jesus's earthly ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you understand the narrative of the Gospels, for, I mean, not just the narrative of the Gospels, the narrative of the entire Bible. What Jesus is doing there is is a unique work in redemptive history where the kingdom of God, which is now incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, he is there walking around, bringing the kingdom to earth. He, in that moment, is sending out his disciples to basically pronounce judgment on Israel. It's, yeah. it's, it's part of the, the, effectively part of the divorce ceremony that will culminate in 70 AD when they see a very, a very real form of judgment under Rome. When the temple is destroyed. That's yeah. right. The, the next thing you see is, is just that uh, that reading of Luke 10 and Matthew 10 doesn't even accord with, uh, with Jesus' own marching orders that he gives the disciples later on in his own ministry. So, so you're saying for the movement practitioners who read this yeah. and say, this is how Jesus has told us to do missions? Yeah, they're not even being consistent with with that assumption. Yeah, like if I was sitting here, I would just say, why do you take Luke 10 to be normative and prescriptive and not Luke 22? Because in Luke 22, Jesus says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So in Luke 10, Jesus says, don't take any money. Right, right. In Luke 22, Jesus says, take money, and by the way, take a sword. Um, well, and there's other things. I mean, Jesus is also telling, uh, in, in Matthew 10 and Luke 10, telling the disciples, do not go to the Gentiles. Yeah. So, And in the Great Commission, he's obviously telling us to go to the Gentiles. To the nations, yeah. yeah. So you have an inconsistency here that, that really can only be understood as cherry-picking. Yeah, so back to our first critique, you, you really only have two options here. Either Jesus is completely contradicting himself... Uh, or you're misunderstanding how to apply the commands that Jesus gives to his disciples at different points in his ministry, mm-hmm. right? He gives them this command at this point in time for this reason, and he gives them a different command at a different point in time for a different reason, okay? Yeah. Um, another thing that we should point out is that uh, is, is, is the way that you see this played out in the rest of the New Testament, right? When you, when you read the rest of the New Testament, you can see how the disciples understood Jesus' marching orders, right? Particularly his marching orders in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. And and what do you see in the book of Acts? Do you see anything like Luke 10? Like Matthew 10? Nope. No, you don't. You don't see Paul going up to Mars Hill going, all right, who here is the person of peace, <laughs> right? Uh, missionaries take money. Uh, they don't take swords. You know, the whole Jesus and Peter in the garden situation probably turned them off to that. But, you know, they're, they're not doing things in the way that Luke 10 and Matthew 10 prescribe. Yeah, Acts, uh, Acts is mostly sermons. Yeah, that's right. They're, so they're, they're preaching. They're doing private ministry of the word. You do see some things that a movement practitioner would look at and say, see, I told you so, like Cornelius. Yeah, or, right? or Lydia or the Philippian jailer. Yeah. These are people who were converted 
Yeah. And then go tell their families and their households and their households believe and repent. But if you're going to say that that Luke 10 is the way that Jesus wants us to do missions, then you have to look at what the apostles do in the book of Acts and beyond and say, you guys missed it. That's right. Okay. Uh, The next critique that we have here is is maybe the most significant. I I don't know. Maybe we'll let you guys be the judge of that. But uh, what Jesus is describing here in Luke 10 is not actually a person of peace. Oh, it is, but it's okay. not what movement practitioners understand <laughs> okay. person of peace All right. to be. Okay. Yeah, this is, I think this is incredibly important. Uh, and this may be, you're right, the strongest critique of this. So person of peace is understood by movement practitioners to be somebody who's sort of like what we might call a seeker. Yeah. It's somebody who's been prepared by God, and you know they've been prepared by God because they're open to spiritual things, spiritual mm. conversations. They're willing to listen to you talk about the gospel. Uh, but this is somebody who is who's already like this pre-evangelism, who's not a Christian, uh, but who is this spiritually interested person, to, to borrow language directly from the people who teach us, spiritually yeah. interested. Uh, that's not what the person of peace in Luke 10 or Matthew 10 is. So if you look at the actual verse here, uh, and, and we read from the ESV, what is translated as a peaceful person in mm-hmm. some versions is is not literally what the Greek says. The Greek is... Is that what we're doing? Or in the Greek? In the Greek. Yeah. This is one of the only words I remember in Greek. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, it's huios. Mm. Huios means son. So the ESV actually gets this right. It directly translates the Greek as son of peace. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because that familial language of sonship mm-hmm. is so... The, the New and Old Testament are saturated with this familial language when the Bible is talking about God's people. Mm. So this is someone who was, in Israel, part of true Israel. This mm. is someone who is faithful to God's covenant. This is someone who uh, we would now, in on our side of Pentecost, and yeah. in, in, in our side of the cross, would call a Christian. Yeah. This is someone who's saved. Yeah. So we don't see any examples anywhere of Jesus or his disciples or the apostles going and finding spiritually interested non-converted people yeah. and, and making them the base of operations for their missions. So the first thing he says is don't go to the Gentiles, right? And then the Jews that you're going to, there's a specific kind of Jew that you're going to. You're going, you're trying to find those who are genuinely converted, yeah. not those who are unconverted, and then you perceive in them a, a little sliver of light that might clue you into the fact that God has been working in their hearts. Well, they're, they're the ones who are very specifically being judged by God. They're the ones who are who Jesus pronounces judgment against, and they're the ones who are shaking the dust off of your feet at, mm. as Jesus' disciples were told. Yeah. So, yeah, again, the son of peace, being the, the correct rendering of that Greek, is a saved person. So in Romans, when Paul says, not all Israel is Israel— we would understand here in Luke, Jesus is sending the disciples to those who are Israel. Yeah, the remnant. The remnant. The faithful remnant. And yeah. so uh, movement practitioners misunderstand the very language from which they get the term person of peace. That seems like a pretty big oversight. But there's more. <laughs> oh, man. So the other, this, is, this is pretty obvious, I think, yeah. but it bears bringing up. So, so often you'll hear, and I just, I just read a quote that says this, uh, Jesus did not instruct his disciples to go find a person of peace. Mm. He didn't tell them to go find a person of peace. He tells them, and you can read this for yourself. Go read Luke 10. He tells them they're going out to pronounce the the kingdom and to pronounce the judgment that's coming against those who are not part of that kingdom. Yeah. And as you go, he says, if you 
enter a house and there's a person of peace there. Mm. Here's the exchange that you're going to have and mm. that's a place you'll stay. There is no um, eternal binding paradigm there that's being taught. It yeah. really is sort of an accidental thing. As there's not know, even a temporary paradigm no, being taught. If you find this person of peace, here's what you're to do. Mm. He's not in, He's not sending them out with a specific mission to find that person. What he's saying is, is as you go out and preach this message, if you find someone in the course of your ministry who is amenable to what you're saying, this is how you should relate to them. Yeah. That's a pretty big difference. It is. So I think... Um, We've made the case at this point that exegetically to read this paradigm from this text is, it's just un, unsupportable. Would you call it eisegesis? I would. I, yeah. That's a fancy word. Yeah. It's taking the idea that I like and reading it back into the text, mm-hmm. trying to find it there. You know, it, it kind of, this is like the Daniel diet of missiology. <laughs> You know, go on you know, the, the Daniel diet. Like oh, I know it. We yeah. read Daniel. We find out that he uh, drinks water and eats vegetables. Yeah, seem to work out well for him. So I'm not going to yeah. read into that text a prescription for healthy living for the Christian today. Yeah, you don't see anybody practicing the John the Baptist diet. Uh, That's interesting. You should try that. Yeah, uh, but it's same concept. Same concept. It's, yeah. it's taking a text, completely ripping it out of the narrative and the context that it lives in getting confused about where that's happening in redemptive history yeah. and putting yourself there rather than realizing we're on the other side of the cross in yeah. the new covenant. Uh, and then using that as, as basically justification for doing whatever you want in missions. Yeah. And, and more than that, using it as a justification for telling other people they need to do that too. Mm, yeah. Uh, I've recently heard a brother say uh, that his number one advice that he gives to pastors and we could apply this to missionaries is just stop doing weird stuff. <laughs> Right, uh, don't it doesn't have to be too complicated. Yeah. Just do what the Bible says, but uh, you have to make sure that you know how to read your Bible. This is why basic Bible reading is something that should be part of Christian discipleship. It should be what's demonstrated, and and uh, it should be something that even if you never take a seminary pl- class, right? It's it's caught in the local church. It's it's when you're when you're in your Bible study and in your small group, when your pastor's preaching through the text, even if he's not explicitly telling you the hermeneutical rules, tools that he's using, right? You just learn like how to read the scriptures well. And and it's obvious uh, by the way that people are, are are being led astray by these missiological what do I want to call them? I like paradigm. <laughs> yeah, sure. We'll call it a paradigm. That's kinder than what I was going to say. That just the, the, one of the main reasons why they're so easily taken in by this is just because they haven't learned how to read their Bibles well. So maybe just uh, you know me, man. Pastor's going to pastor. Uh, one of the most practical things that I can say to people who are encounter- encountering this stuff is your number one defense isn't you don't have to do all the work that Russell did. You don't have to spend a thousand hours studying missionary movements. Just learn how to read your Bible well. And then when something funny comes along, you'll be able to sniff it out. Yeah. That's true. Yep. Well, brother, that's all I got. Same here. Hey, quick and easy, short episode. We're going to be back for another episode, Lord willing, next week where the critique of disciple-making movements will continue. Signing off for the Defending Confirmed Podcast. I'm Russell. I'm Sean. Thank you for listening. <laughs>